Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. The court had another big week of oral arguments, and although it hasn't issued any opinions yet, we did have a few noteworthy orders. GC, what can you tell us about those? Starting off, the court denied certiorari in a case called Buffington versus McDonough, a case out of the Federal Circuit that squarely presented the question of whether the Supreme Court should overrule Chevron versus Natural Defense Council. Chevron is the case that created Chevron deference, a doctrine that says that when a statute is ambiguous, courts must defer to executive agencies' interpretations of it so long as the interpretation is reasonable. It has come under a relentless and withering barrage of criticism, and the court has significantly limited it but has not overruled it. Justice Gorsuch issued a solo dissent from the denial and said that the court should have taken the case and should give Chevron, quote, a tombstone no one can miss. There were two other interesting dissents from denial of cert. One involved a dissent from denial by Justice Clarence Thomas in Clinding versus United States, where he criticized the court's refusal to take up a case where it was being asked to do away with the Ferris Doctrine, which prohibits service members from recovering for their injuries under the Federal Tort Claims Act. Thomas described the Ferris Doctrine as, quote, an atextual policy-based carve-out that heartily deserves the widespread, almost universal criticism it has received. Justice Gorsuch also dissented in a different case, Karami versus Arizona, where the court was being asked to decide whether a 12-member jury is constitutionally required. Karami had been convicted in Arizona state court by an eight-member jury for serious offenses. Gorsuch said that in his view, quote, a mountain of evidence suggests that both at the time of the Sixth Amendment's adoption and for most of our nation's history, the right to a trial by jury for serious criminal offenses meant a trial before 12 members of the community, nothing less. Now, interestingly, Justice Kavanaugh did not join Justice Gorsuch's dissent in this matter, but he did indicate that he would have granted the petition to hear the case. So this might be an interesting issue to watch in the future. Yeah, I wonder how Kavanaugh would have decided the case if not on Gorsuch's grounds. I don't know. Maybe he thinks it's just an important issue that needs to, to be resolved. Well, turning to oral arguments, on the subject of administrative law, let me mention two really important cases that were argued on Monday, the Securities and Exchange Commission versus Cochran and Axon versus the Federal Trade Commission. Both of these cases involve allegations of misconduct and unconstitutional actions by the agencies, but those questions are not at issue. What's at issue is whether people who want to challenge the agencies must spend years litigating in those agencies' in-house courts before they can go to federal courts. Now, I use the term in-house courts somewhat lightly because they're not really courts, although they do adjudicate agency-related claims in the first instance. Now, there's a statute at issue called Section 1331, and it gives federal district courts original jurisdiction in all constitutional civil cases. But the government agencies here have taken the position that because Congress gave them in-house courts to adjudicate certain matters, the federal courts don't actually have jurisdiction anymore. At argument, the justices seemed very skeptical of the government's claims. Another oral argument to highlight this week is Holland versus Brackeen. 
After the Harvard and UNC cases, this is another important but less high-profile race case. It involves a challenge to the Indian Child Welfare Act, which, among other things, creates a preference that Indian children up for adoption or foster care placement should be placed with other Indian families instead of non-Indian families who would be happy to adopt or foster them. This case challenges both Congress's ability to create this law and the fact that it appears to violate the equal protection rights of both the children and the families involved in these cases. Next up, our interview with Chris Landau will be right after this. For over 35 years, the Heritage Foundation Job Bank has been helping conservatives at all professional levels find employment in key positions in Washington, D.C. and across the country. We can help connect you with positions in the administration, on Capitol Hill, in public policy organizations, and in the private sector. To learn more about the Heritage Foundation Job Bank, go to heritage.org slash job bank. We're pleased to be joined today by Chris Landau, who currently works at the law firm of Ellis, George, and Cipollone. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Thank you for coming on. Now, Chris, before we dive into your legal career, I'm always curious, did you always want to be a lawyer? Not at all. In fact, as I was growing up, my father was a foreign service officer, career foreign service officer, and I thought I'd follow in his footsteps. Uh, I loved living abroad. I was born in Spain and grew up in different countries in South America and really enjoyed that experience of, of living in different cultures and very much was always interested in geography and history and other countries and peoples and, and thought that that was my career path. And my father said to me when I was about to graduate from college, I told him I was going to take the foreign service exam. He said, listen, you know, I'm a career foreign service guy and I would recommend that you get a professional degree, get a law degree. You can always do international affairs down the road, but at least you'll, you're not a hostage to the bureaucracy and you will have a, you know, a profession to fall back on. Uh, so I went to law school really not ever intending to practice law, but you know, just thinking I would have that. Uh, you know, it was good for learning to think analytically and, and so forth, but, but uh, I, I did not intend to practice law. Mm. Now, you ended up going to Harvard Law School where I know you were the uh, articles co-chair of the Harvard Law Review, and you won the Sears Prize for the highest GPA in your second year. Uh, congratulations. Uh, what were those experiences like, and do any particular memories from your time at Harvard Law School stand out? You know, I remember very vividly the first day of law school, uh, calling my father uh, and uh, you know, uh, a, a tear or two may have been shed on this call, just saying, I don't belong here. What the heck am I doing here? I'm not interested in this stuff. You know, we were assigned to read some cases. I think it was a civil procedure assignment, and it was talking about the plaintiff and the defendant. And I said, I'm not interested in any of this stuff. What, what, what am I doing here? And he said, listen, just take a deep breath. Um, you know, you'll, you'll, you, you'll, you'll get the hang of it and, um, you know, just, just tough it out. If you don't, if you change, if you really don't want to do it, ultimately you can make the decision, but don't, don't bail on the first day. And so I didn't. And, you know, he, he turned out as usual to be uh, correct that, um, you know, it, it, it kind of grew on me. But again, I, I, I took a lot of courses on 
international law. I, I never thought I was going to use my legal education as a springboard to to a a career practicing law. And um, you know, I, I guess I'm very blessed that I learned early on in high school really how to write a good exam essay. So that stood me in, in good stead both in college and in law school. And and you know, I, I feel very blessed to have had you know, great educational opportunities and try to take advantage of them. And, and, you know, I'm kind of a type A person. So I, you know, I, I tried out for the law review and then I applied for clerkships. And again, without really having a clear career path that I wanted to do this, I just kind of was always reaching for the next rung on the ladder. And then again, very blessed to have had that opportunity. Well, you mentioned clerkships, Chris, and I know after law school, you clerked for then judge Clarence Thomas on the DC circuit and you later clerked for uh, Justice Clarence Thomas when he was uh, after he was appointed to the Supreme Court. What were those experiences like clerking for Judge and then Justice Thomas? Incredible. I mean, you know, clerking in general is a wonderful experience to any young lawyers out there who may be listening. I highly recommend it. I think if you are going to be a litigator, it is very valuable to understand what goes on behind the curtain in a judge's chambers, the way judges think about cases and approach cases. And, uh, you know, if you can swing it from a student loans perspective and, and, and financially, I would definitely recommend the, the, the clerking experience. And, and besides that, you, you often uh, make a friend and mentor for life, as I did, uh, you know, with, with the various judges and justices that I clerked for. Um, you know, Justice Thomas, I was very fortunate to be his first law clerk, both on the Court of Appeals in the D.C. Circuit and at the Supreme Court, just the way life kind of works out timing-wise. I was supposed to clerk for Ken Starr uh, coming out of law school. He hired me in my second year of law school. He was then on the D.C. Circuit. Uh, and then this was he hired me in 1988. I, I was class of 89 in law school. Shortly before I graduated, he resigned from the bench to become Solicitor General in the first Bush administration. Uh, so I found myself clerkshipless uh, at the Court of Appeal level. The, 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 the consolation prize was that, fortunately, Justice Scalia had already hired me for the following year for the Supreme Courts, and, and he said that he would you know, honor that, uh, that, that job offer regardless of what I did in the intervening year. So um, you know, I, I went and worked at the Justice Department for a while and then waited for the first uh, Bush appointee to be confirmed to the D.C. Circuit, who happened to be Clarence Thomas. And, and I was actually very fortunate. I, I, I was in the Office of Legal Counsel uh, and got to work on his confirmation hearings to the D.C. Circuit. And he and I really hit it off. I mean, sometimes you just meet somebody in life and you just kind of click on all cylinders. And, and that's the relationship we had from the beginning. And so, you know, it was great clerking for him. Really, it was just a few months, his first few months on the D.C. Circuit in the spring of 1990. And then I went off to clerk for Justice Scalia at the Supreme Court. And then um, it was interesting. I, I had you know, lunch with Justice Thomas, then Judge Thomas, from time to time during my Supreme Court clerkship with Justice Scalia. And um, we actually scheduled a lunch for the last day of the Supreme Court term. And I arrived uh, at the little hole in the wall near the D.C. Circuit uh, to have lunch, my brother's place, and um, told him, well, you know, it's a pretty quiet end of term, um, nobody retired, and we kind of talked about our summer plans. As we walked back to the D.C. Circuit from the little restaurant, 
saw all these cars whizzing by on Constitution Avenue. And you just kind of knew something was up. We got back to his chambers and one of his clerks ran out saying, you know, Justice Marshall retired. Justice Marshall retired. He had a, he was clutching all these pink phone slips in his hand. And, uh, you know, it was almost like a weight fell on, on then Judge Thomas at that moment because we just all kind of knew what that meant for him. And um, so, you know, the rest is history, as they say. But, uh, you know, again, it, it, he, he was ultimately confirmed and asked me to come back and clerk for him again at the Supreme Court, which was a great honor and, and, and pleasure. Excellent. What was the biggest difference clerking for Justice Thomas on the D.C. Circuit versus clerking for him at the Supreme Court? Well, you know, in the Supreme, in the D.C. Circuit, of course, you know, questions have an answer more often than not, that you, you kind of at least look to Supreme Court precedent. You don't have to, and it's not really your role to decide, you know, what makes sense and kind of, you know, figure things out from first principles. The Supreme Court's a very different kettle of fish. You know, you, you, you really, in order to, 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 to at least engage in rational decision making, you have to understand, or you, you have to kind of go back and see, you know, whether the precedents make sense. You're allowed to ask that question. Uh, and again, not to say that you will, uh, uh, you, you know, ignore precedent, but it's, it's, it's often worthwhile to, to kind of think about it. It's not binding on you the same way it is for a lower court judge. So, um, you know, again, it was his first, uh, you know, tenure in both courts that, that, that when I was with him. And, um, you know, I think the DC circuit is again, just a, a, a more low key place because you're not really deciding the, 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 the big, issues of first impression by and large. You're mostly applying law to the facts of the cases before you. Um, you know, the Supreme Court, it, it was tough. And that first term was a very difficult term. I mean, it was, you know, the, the Casey decision was there. That was the, you know, the abortion case that time, you know, for, to, to have the constellation of cases that came up that first uh, term was quite remarkable. That was just a uniquely challenging term. And I think Justice Thomas was in dissent, let's say, in his first sitting in November of 1991. I think he was in dissent, in dissent maybe, in solo dissent, maybe like three or four times. I'm not sure they all wound up being solo dissents, but, you know, they, they you know, he, he, I think from the beginning, he, you know, he, he was kind of not going to just uh, follow precedents blindly if he didn't think they made sense. He wanted to kind of understand, and, and, and he was, you know, he kind of had a particular view of the role of a judge, and, and you know, was going to stick to it. Right. Now, you mentioned you also clerked for Justice Scalia on the Supreme Court. Do you have any special memories from your time clerking with Justice Scalia? Again, it was such a blessing. I mean, you know, I, I remember, you know, giving him drafts and and... You know, I kind of felt it was like giving somebody, a, you know, a, a, a jeweler a stone and having him turn it into a diamond. I mean, you know, I, I think myself as a pretty good writer and, and certainly, you know, people who get to that level, it's because, you know, you, you've done well. But I mean, he is just in a different league and, and it was such a pleasure to, to work with him and, and just see his great mind at work and, and um, you know, the the... It was a very collegial atmosphere in the chambers. I mean, he would really bring in all the clerks and we'd talk through the cases and he really enjoyed that. And, and we all did too. It was like being in a you know super high level 
graduate seminar. And, um, you know, he had an instinctive feeling for the law and the way I think the framers would see the world. And, uh, you know, I just think he, he kind of had his head in that place. And, you know, he, he often kind of had instincts about what, you know, historical practice was and, and, and just the way the framers would look at it that, you know, we would then go and do the research and, and, and almost always he was correct. I mean, he just, he had a real knack for that. He's also an incredible, just, um, detailed lawyer. I mean, every, you know, this is something that I really admired as a lawyer that, he would always book his opinions at the end. So you would actually wheel in a physical cart with every source that was cited. And he would go through and check every single source to make sure that, you know, the quote he was using actually stood for that proposition and wasn't chopped from half of a sentence and wasn't taken out of context. And, you know, he was very persnickety about that. And again, it was just, it was nice to see somebody who took that degree of care both in terms of the the, the substance and, and just the, the technical lawyer. Of course. Excellent. Now, after you clerked on the Supreme Court, I know you moved into private practice at Kirkland and Ellis for a number of years, and I believe you argued nine cases before the Supreme Court. Uh, are there any particular cases or memories from those arguments that stand out? Oh, you know, every case is like your baby, kind of, and, and each of them had their ups and downs and... Um, you know, I have to say, I was always impressed at the Supreme Court just with the quality of the justices' preparation and questions. Um, you know, I, I argued in, in all of the uh, courts of appeals, all the federal ones and a, a decent number of state ones uh, as well. And, um, you know, it was interesting for, for me, at least, having clerked at the Supreme Court, uh, you know, it was always kind of like going home. I mean, I felt a comfort level there. Uh, that um, I didn't always feel in the courts of appeals where I, I'd never, you know, I, I was sometimes arguing before panels that I, I didn't know any of them. And, uh, you know, there's just a, a, a much more uneven degree of preparation in, in other courts. But the Supreme Court, I always thought was, you know, was great in terms of just really having done their homework for arguments and, you know, I, again, I, I was kind of lucky. I think, you know, maybe this has been a golden period for advocacy in the Supreme Court. I mean, when, when I was, um, you know, in law school, I, I, went, I started law school the year that Justice Scalia was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1986. And I think he really revolutionized oral arguments in the Supreme Court, and, and as well as just adjudication in the Supreme Court. I mean, he was much more rigorous, much more focused on the law and, you know, what does the statute say and, and what does the, you know, you know, how do you go about, you know, how do the rules of interpretation work, you know, and, and just being very demanding at oral argument. There was, this, you know, he, he really brought about a sea change and, and it just made it more fun, I think, for lawyers. And, and it created, I think, a much more professional Supreme Court bar. I mean, when I started at Kirkland in the early 90s, it was just the beginning of kind of firms you know, having appellate practices. That was a fairly novel thing. There had been a few kind of appellate boutiques beforehand, um, but, you know, there was no appellate practice at Kirkland when I got there. I, I came there with Ken Starr and, and Paul Capuccio in, in 93, and we kind of started the thing, and, and it was still a fairly new idea. And, it, you know, over the following, you know, two and a half decades that I was there, it kind of really spread throughout the practice. And so 
Supreme Court advocacy today is extremely different than it was when I started it in the early 90s. And, and you know, certainly I think a lot of that goes to Justice Scalia, who really changed the Supreme Court in very profound ways. Hmm. Now, one of the things I saw that you're involved with, Chris, I saw that the Chief Justice in 2017, Chief Justice Roberts, appointed you to serve on the advisory committee on the Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure. Can you tell our listeners what that is and what the experience of serving on that advisory committee is like? I love that experience. I mean, I'm kind of a law nerd, as you might have guessed. I mean, or I became a law nerd. I guess I used to, went back to the beginning of the conversation. I wasn't born that way, um, but maybe I'm just a nerd generally. And, you know, certainly when you practice for that many years, you become aware of, you know, gaps and ambiguities in the rules because clients will ask you questions sometimes or you will be faced with questions of your own uh, in terms of, you know, how, how do I just, you know, what, what is the deadline for this? When, when does this thing begin to run? When does it end? Um, you know, when it says, you know, uh, this or that in the rule, you know, what does that actually mean? And, um, you know, so I had a number of things that were, you know, on my mind, again, having practiced for about, you know, more than 20 years when, when the chief appointed me to that position. And so it was, it was great. I mean, I think a lot of people don't understand that you know, the, the, the rules of civil procedure, appellate procedure, all those initiate with the judiciary. And so the, the, they start with these panels that the, 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 the chief justice appoints. And, and you know, they're not statutes enacted by Congress. Congress has, has you know, created, the, through the Rules Enabling Act, they, they, they have created the authority in the judiciary to do this, to kind of have its own housekeeping rules. Um, but but so, you know, it, it's, it's kind of an unusual, um, you know, quasi legislative is probably the wrong term, but, you know, it's it's an unusual little corner of the law. Uh, and the committee was great. I mean, it's you know, there's always a couple of private practitioners on it, a couple of judges, uh, academics. And it was one of my favorite professional experiences, just, you know, meeting with those folks uh, and, you know, talking through issues on the rules, you know, it goes through a pretty rigorous process where you re review things. And so, um, anyway, uh, I, I, you know, I, I really love that. Excellent. Excellent. Now in 2019, Chris, President Trump nominated you and the Senate unanimously confirmed you, which I know was a rarity during the Trump administration, uh, to be the ambassador to Mexico. How did that come about? Well, again, you know, it, it goes back to what I start, how I started this conversation, that I'd always had this duality in me, I guess. I mean, even though I think most people professionally knew me as a lawyer, uh, and, which I was for you know, more than 25 years, I always had an interest in foreign affairs, a very strong interest, and, and followed that, and particularly in Latin America. You know, I, I said, given my background and in college, I had gotten a degree in Latin American studies, and I wrote my thesis on U.S. relations with Venezuela back in the 1940s. And these were issues that I still really cared about, even though I hadn't had a chance to manifest that in my professional career. You know, it's a little bit the right place, the right time kind of thing. The, 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 the president was looking for an ambassador to Mexico uh, back in, in, in 2018. Um, he actually offered me a different job originally. He offered me a judicial 
uh, position. And, you know, I said that, you know, Mr. President, I, I'm very grateful for that. I, I'm very honored by that. But, you know, I, I would rather be your ambassador to Mexico. I think I, I can bring more to the table there that, that, that is kind of a unique combination of skills. Uh, and um, so, you know, he thought about it a little bit. I think he was quite surprised. Uh, <laughs> a lifetime appointment to the federal judiciary is, is a pretty good gig. Um, but, um, you know, he, he, he said, okay. And, you know, I, I went through a, you know, a vetting process. I met with all kinds of people in, in the White House and the State Department. And, and um, anyway, it was, it was um, you know, again, I, I think sometimes in life there's a, there's a, a you can work hard and, and, and have all kinds of professional achievements. At the end of the day, a lot of it is being in the right place at the right time. And, and I feel very blessed that that came about. And, you know, in a sense, it brought my life full circle. And I have to say, when I became ambassador and, and you know, arrived in the embassy in Mexico City, it really did feel to me like I'd come home again. I mean, I, I actually felt more comfortable in that job uh, than I ever did as a lawyer. I just felt like that, that I felt much more in my own skin. Um, maybe this is, again, the way I grew up in a diplomatic family. Um, I remember back in law school, I mean, being kind of envious of people who, you know, they just kind of knew they wanted to be lawyers. And you could just kind of imagine them as kids sitting around the dinner table, you know, arguing about things. And that was just very different than the way things were in my family. And, you know, I, 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 I think for me, the diplomatic position was just a, a great fit. Even though, I mean, again, there's a lot of, a lot of things were very similar and a lot of things were very dissimilar from being a lawyer. I mean, the, you know, as an appellate lawyer in particular, my job is mostly reading and writing, and I did almost none of that as an ambassador. So in that sense, it was, you know, just the polar opposite uh, of what I used to do. I was just all kind of talking to people and meeting people. On the other hand, you know, I think a lawyer, your job is really to come up with a, a you know, a, a narrative to persuade somebody of your point of view, to, you know, to, and, you know, kind of same thing in diplomacy. You got to, you know, you got to kind of use empathy and figure out, you know, what's the other person's perspective and how can you persuade them? And again, you know, you're, you're, you're you know, it's not an adversarial system in that sense, but you're still, you know, you still have certain, you know, objectives to accomplish and, and you want to be able to make your case persuasively. And... So, you know, I found that a lot of the skills I had uh, developed as a lawyer did come in very handy in, in the foreign policy sphere. So, uh, and, and we're not ones, I think, that a lot of the people who are professionals in that sphere necessarily, um, you know, focus on. So, you know, I, I thought it was great all around. I, I loved it. I was, you know, I'm very, I have to say, a lot of people complain about the, the um, confirmation process in, in the Senate and, and you know, it, it, I know some people were really victimized by that process. For me, at least, I have no complaints about it. And I actually thought it showed the wisdom of the framers that they had the, 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 the you know, the check on just a, a completely unbridled appointments process. I, I think it's valuable to, you know, go through that kind of a confirmation process to make sure that we... Uh, you know that, that that the president's one, whoever the president is, you know, it, you know, is getting quality people in the top jobs. And so certainly, again, I, I you know, I don't know if my experience is typical or atypical, but but I felt like I was treated very fairly. I, I enjoyed meeting with the senators, and that was not a 
part of the you know Washington that I knew particularly well, the Hill, and 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 I enjoyed that. Excellent. Now, are there any particularly memorable experiences from your time as uh, ambassador to Mexico? I'm sure illegal immigration, trade issues, and dealing with cartels were all very pressing issues. Yeah, Zach. That is a very complicated relationship, which is one of the reasons I wanted the job. I mean, I knew this is not a you know champagne and 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 caviar cocktails kind of embassy. I mean, this is a a, a very hard job, which is frankly what made it appealing to me. And as I mentioned, I you know I have a background in Latin America. I, I'm bilingual in Spanish. I, I I haven't lost it since my childhood. And, you know, I think that that made me kind of particularly, you know, eager to make a mark on some of these issues. Um, You know, all the issues you mentioned were very much on the agenda. I mean, migration, security uh, and and trade. And, you know, know, I think we made some good progress in in all those areas. I think the one thing that will define my tenure is just the pandemic. I mean, I've been there uh, seven or eight months when the pandemic started and as you can imagine, that created all kinds of um, difficulties and uncertainties, particularly, uh, well, in every dimension. But you know, I think the big, one of the biggest immediate challenges was on the commercial front. I don't think people realize that you know, Mexico is such a major commercial partner of ours. In fact, it's our largest trading partner uh, sometimes. It kind of goes between Mexico, China, and Canada. Uh, when I got there in 2019, it was our largest trading partner. And, um, you know, all of a sudden, you have the pandemic, we had to figure out, you know, how do you deal with the border? And, you know, we, we were able to keep commerce flowing, uh, but we had to restrict non-essential travel. Those things were very complicated. How do you enforce immigration laws during the border? We got the Title 42 authorities, uh, you know, put into place on the domestic side and worked that out with the Mexicans. So, that was all very challenging, and it was done almost overnight, and there was really no rule book for how you deal with this in a pandemic. And certainly, you know, for the months following that, there were lots of moments when I'd get these frantic calls from American CEOs saying, look, you know, we're allowed to keep working in the States, uh, but, you know, our, our, we don't have any inventory, and, and we're going to have to stop working if we don't get the supply chains from Mexico up and running within, a, you know, a few days. And... So, you know, those were very challenging times. And of course, you know, I was working from home like everybody else. And, and um, you know, we, we all had to kind of, uh, you know, put together our lives with knitting chewing gum during the pandemic. And, and that was, you know, I did too. And that was a challenging time. But again, I, I, I have to say I loved that job. Um, you know, being an ambassador, again, is fun because it covers everything. It covers economics. It covers politics, it covers culture, it covers education. I mean, just there's so many different aspects to it. And, and I love just, you know, traveling around Mexico, getting to know the Mexican people. I was active on social media. By the time I left, I had about uh, a quarter of a million followers on social media and I was, you know, tweeting in Spanish. And it was just kind of nice to, you know, project a kind of a different image than the American ambassador down there typically had. And, and you know, I was a pretty hands-on person. I think, again, having not been in government for my career, I was very conscious of the way that it could be very frustrating for people in the private sector trying to have, you know, trying to have the government work for them, which the government should, right? I mean, you know, when you work in the government, you're a public servant. And 
you know, I have to say that is not generally the attitude of a lot of people in government. And so I, I, you know, I did my best to try to change that and to try to, you know, support all the different constituencies who needed support. Excellent. Now, I did want to ask you, Chris, in September 2020, President Trump added you to his shortlist of potential Supreme Court nominees. Uh, Do you know how that happened and what was your reaction uh, to seeing that? I was very gratified, as you might expect. I mean, it's it's a nice it's a nice honor. I mean, I, I you know the short list was actually relatively long, so I you know, I wouldn't read. I, it didn't make my head swell too much. Um, but yeah, look, it's nice to be you know to know that you have earned some respect to want, find your way, name on that list. Um, and you know, it kind of came as a surprise to me. I mean, it was not something that I was lobbying for. I was very happily ensconced at the embassy in Mexico City. And, um, you know, uh, again, I think the people who were already judges had gone through a level of vetting that, you know, made it a lot easier, that made them kind of front runners. Uh, You know, the vetting you do as an ambassador is very different than the vetting you do to be a judge. You know, they go over every single legal thing you've written and Again, I think people are just looking at different things for different jobs. And so, you know, I, I, I wasn't under any illusion that, that um, I was at the top of the list. But, you know, it was nice to be included in the mix. And, and you know, again, you just never know with those things. Um, but, you know, it's nice to know that, 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 you know, at least somebody thought well enough of me to, to include my name there. And, um, you, know, I, you know, so I was flattered by that. Well, excellent. Excellent. Well, Chris, I have a final question. We ask all of our guests here on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Well, I hope this isn't a cliche, uh, but my answer is Justice Jackson, Robert Jackson. I am just such a fan of his. I mean, you know, occasionally, you know, you, you run across somebody, actually not very often, you, you know, usually you kind of read old opinions and, you know, they're just kind of workmanlike and, you, you know, you, you get whatever you need out of them. You look for whatever the, the, the proposition of law is that you're looking for. And, but his opinions draw you in with a kind of wisdom and, 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 and about human nature, the role of the law. I mean, he's kind of like Justice Scalia in that sense. I think somebody who just you get the sense that here's just a real person of wisdom. You know, not just some, you know, judicial bureaucrat, you know, writing something. And and I feel like he's somebody who, you know, had a real understanding of the court and its role. And, and you know, not to say that I agreed with everything he necessarily wrote, but I, I, I found him to be somebody very intriguing. And, and that's somebody that I would have really enjoyed uh, I think getting to know and, and talking to him about, you know, how he, um, you know, sees the court's role, whether or not, you know, going back to kind of Wickard versus Filbert, and if, if those folks kind of understood what they were doing there and what the ramifications would be. And, you know, if they kind of, again, could have ever guessed where some of the decisions they made in those post-New Deal years you know, where that would take the court and the country. Um, so I, 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 he's my answer. Do a lot Excellent. of people give that answer, Zach? 
Justice Jackson is a uh, fan favorite here, okay. <laughs> here on the right. show. Okay, no, I, certain... I, I didn't. I wasn't. I, I didn't think I'd pick somebody terribly obscure. And I, again, I hope it's not too much of a cliche. But for those of you, again, young lawyers who aren't that familiar with him, he's you know he's a little bit obscure now. Uh, but I think among cognoscenti, he's pretty he's pretty popular. And and you know, try to find some of his opinions because they're really worth it. Excellent, excellent. Well, it's certainly a good choice. And uh, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with us today. It's been a fascinating conversation, and I hope you'll come back and join us again in the future. Well, thank you, Zach. And let me just put in one final plug, you know, for people who are listening. You know, again, I think my career shows that a career in the law doesn't have to kind of start in one place and end in a particular place. I mean, you can take it lots of different ways. And I'm really glad I kind of you know, went out and took something a little bit in left field by going off as ambassador to Mexico. For me, that was just a very enriching experience. And I would urge all lawyers, you know, to, to think, um, you know, who might be interested in public service, to think beyond just the judiciary or the Justice Department to, to other ways to use your talents and other fora. And uh, again, I, I'm always happy to talk to people if they're interested in you know, foreign affairs or whatever other career may be. Um, you know, I, I found myself after 30 years of practicing, you know, telling young people, yeah, take a risk in your career. It's, it's worth it, you know. And But then I thought, well, I'm giving this advice, but I certainly haven't taken it. I, I, I'm still you – know, I worked in the same law firm for 25 years, for heaven's sake. Um, so anyway, uh, that's my final, my final thought. No, excellent. It's great advice, and I'm sure our listeners uh, appreciate hearing it. Thank you so much for coming on, Chris. It's my pleasure, Zach. Thanks for inviting me. Take care. GC, I always enjoy trivia about the justices. Uh, we so often might recognize their names, maybe, uh, but we don't know much about them. So I thought this week I could send some zingers your way about the justices themselves and how they interact with each other on the court. Uh, Zach, this is just you flipping trivia against me. You know that I prefer Supreme Court cases rather than justice trivia. Well, we have to keep it interesting, GC. Uh, uh, fair enough, but I, I don't anticipate great performance on my part. Well, let's see. I suspect you'll do better uh, <laughs> than you think you will. Uh, so one of the things I was thinking about, GC, uh, earlier in October, the justices set for their class picture. Uh, you know, whenever a new mm-hmm. justice joins the, the court, uh, the justices get together as a group and take a group photo. Now, this is a tradition that's been going on for many, many years and so my question to you is, who was the chief justice when the justices took their first class photo? And I'll give you a hint. This is a tough okay. one. Uh, Matthew Brady, a famed American photographer, took one of the earliest class photos of the justices. Uh, uh, okay. So then I guess Matthew Brady, correct me if I'm wrong, he was the Civil War photographer, right? That's right. Uh, famous so- Civil War photographer. Okay. Okay. So this would have been right after the Civil War. My guess is Chief Justice Salmon Chase. Yes, that's exactly right. That's a great guess. All right. Uh, The first class photo was in 1867, and it included the nine justices and the clerk of court. Now, interestingly, all in all, there have been 58 class portraits of the justices. As a recent New York Times article points out, on the staging of the class pictures, uh, that's remained remarkably stable since the late 1800s when the justices adopted the five-seated, four-standing approach still used today. Obviously, the more senior justices sit and the more junior justices stand behind them, 
It's all a highly choreographed uh, production. How interesting. Now, here's a bonus question for you, GC. In that first class picture in 1867, uh, there had been a few justices who had been serving for quite some time. So who was the earliest serving president to have a justice he nominated still serving at that time? Ooh. This is a tough one. I'll give you that. No, yeah, that's fair. I, I don't know. Well, that's okay, GC. This was very tough. Uh, it was Andrew Jackson. Uh, one of his nominees to be on the court was still serving in 1867. Uh, President Jackson nominated Justice James N. Wayne in 1835. Now, Justice Wayne would die later in 1867 in July of that year. Uh, and another interesting tidbit about Justice Wayne at the time of his passing, he was the last member of the Marshall Court to still be actively sitting on the bench. Hmm. All right, GC, you're one, one for one here. That's uh, okay. pretty good, given that these are tough questions. Now, the mention of the Marshall Court does have me thinking about chief justices. Uh, so let's talk about chief justices for a minute. Who was the first person to serve as chief justice who had not previously served in an elective office? Now, since this is another tough one, I'll give you another hint. He was a very well-known dean of Columbia's law school. Ah, Harlan Fisk Stone. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, before joining the court as an associate justice in 1925, he had served as dean of Columbia's law school and as the attorney general. President Calvin Coolidge nominated Stone to be an associate justice in 1925, and FDR nominated him to be the chief justice in 1941, a capacity in which he served until his death in 1946. Now, his tenure also marked one of the shortest tenures for any chief justice. Can you name the two chiefs who served shorter stints uh, than Chief Justice Harlan Fisk Stone? Well, I know one for sure is uh, John Rutledge, who yep. served for a hot second. That is exactly right. Um, let's see. This the next. I wouldn't know the next. Well, that's okay. John Rutledge is a uh, is a very good guess, and in fact, your a hot second is a, a very <laughs> appropriate way to describe his tenure uh, because he served for only a hundred and thirty eight days. The other chief justice who barely served a shorter tenure than Stone was Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth. Uh, Ellsworth served as chief justice for four years and 282 days before he resigned in 1800 due to poor health. Stone served for four years and 293 days uh, as the chief justice. Hmm. So Ellsworth barely served a shorter period of time. All right. Final question, GC. You're doing well so far. Who was the last chief justice to be confirmed by acclamation or voice vote in the U.S. Senate, which essentially means that the votes of individual senators were not recorded? Now, here's my hint for you. It wasn't John Roberts. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> William Rehnquist. Uh, and it wasn't Warren Berger. No, I, I, I know all of that. Um, wow. I guess, I guess, let me just walk, walk that path back one more and go Earl Warren. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. Uh, it was Earl Warren in 1954, and all in all, eight of the 17 chief justices were confirmed uh, by acclamation. 
Hmm. Well, well done today, GC. Uh, that's uh, that was a pretty good run at some very well, difficult I, trivia questions. I, I think I think you really held my hand through that. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, they were they were tough questions, but you came out of it looking like a rock star. So well done. <laughs> And thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. That's all we have for today. So please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we would appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.